Well, this morning, uh, I mentioned last week, we are supposed to be in 2 Kings. There is a story about a floating axe head, which as hard as I tried, I could not make work for Easter. So I decided to give you a standalone Easter message. We'll be back in 2 Kings next week. But this morning, I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 24. And really, we're picking up from where we left off. We were reading from Mark's gospel, if you were with us for Good Friday service. But we ended that reading uh, from Mark's gospel with Jesus's, of course, crucifixion, his death, and his burial. And we'll pick up this morning. As I was looking through, again, those Easter passages from the Gospels, one of the things that struck me is how unlike the story if we had written it, the Gospel account actually is. I actually think it's one of the things that lends towards the credibility of the Gospel account. If we were given the task of making up some great resurrection passage, surely we would do it like many of those Easter cantatas some of us have participated in, right? A big cave with a stone in front of it, the brilliant light that's shining through the gap around the stone, the stone rolls and the fog pours out from the base of the opening, and there silhouetted in the light is Jesus' figure stepping forward. What's interesting is none of the Gospels depict that scene. We find that the tomb is empty, We get a testimony from one of the angels in the tomb. We hear the message of the guards who had been guarding the tomb. But instead, Jesus is not shown in the Gospels there in that moment, that moment of resurrection. But instead, the disciples find Jesus after the resurrection. He comes to them, appears to them. The passage we'll be looking at today walks with them on a road. The truth is, as much as resurrection is about that moment, certainly it is, life bringing Christ back in vindication, in power, it is also about the reality that Jesus is present with us, that in his resurrection, he comes to us, he walks with us, he reveals himself to us in that resurrection. The early church quickly recognized that when Jesus' resurrection was true, That it was about sin being dealt with, the cross having put an end to sin, but it was also about this new reality of Christ present and real. What the resurrection did was energize the early church. It propelled them into the world to proclaim what Christ had done and what it meant. I've sometimes used the illustration before that when our children were little, I think Will probably has this money thing figured out by now, but when they were little, if I had said to him, I'll buy you a new bike or give you $10 million, he would have been just as happy with the bike as the $10 million. There was no category for something of that much value. And so often I think it is with this event of Easter. For those of us who live in a broken world, a broken world where we do face sickness and loss, frustration and anxiety and fear, This news that Christ is risen can strike us as important, but maybe not the full importance of it setting in. We're as happy with the bike as the money. We're as happy with this news of Christ alive, but never fully understanding just how significant this news we've received is. The fact that Jesus is alive is good news, but there's certainly more than just that. There's a new way of living, a new way of living for which most of us have not had a category for fully comprehending. Christ is risen. Christ is alive. It's hard with our preoccupations, our to-do lists, our chores, our concerns, to fully receive and understand just how significant this news actually is. What we do this morning, what churches all over the world have done for centuries before us, and from little villages and remote nations to big cities to little churches like ours all over the world, what we do when we all gather on this Easter morning is remind ourselves that something significant has happened. Christ is resurrected. Christ is alive. Christ is coming to us, finding us 
tracking us down on roads and in rooms with locked doors, walking through the walls if he has to, revealing himself to us in this power of new life that is ours by it. With that in mind this morning, I want to reread what is certainly a familiar passage to all of us from Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 1, the resurrection onto the passage we'll spend our time looking at, this discussion with Jesus and these two followers on the road to Emmaus. I'll be reading through verse 35, Luke chapter 24, verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb. They told all they had seen to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us when he talked to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures? 
And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. It's one of my favorite stories from the Gospels. This scene with the resurrected Jesus walking with his disciples on the road to Emmaus is, I think, one of the most powerful images of resurrection, perhaps even more powerful than the image of him appearing in the tomb with the light around him. Maybe you hadn't considered it before, but this Easter morning, Luke begins this account with women coming to the tomb at empty, with them returning back with this message from the divine angelic messengers, and yet the disciples, the followers of Jesus, still finding it hard to believe. An idle tale, make-believe. Even Peter, having seen the empty tomb, marvels at it, but no one is quite sure what to make of it. It's a powerful passage that ends with Peter marveling at what had happened. But still, one big thing missing from the story. Jesus. Where is Jesus in the midst of Jesus' story about Jesus' resurrection? Jesus should be at the middle of the story. But it's all empty tombs, and I saw this, and I saw this, and I went and found this. But where is Jesus? I got to thinking this week about if I were Jesus, what is the first thing I would have done after resurrection? Which, by the way, is not a particularly good way to read the Bible. If I were Jesus, what would I do? So uh, I do realize today is my birthday, but it's a little hard to say today's about me when you recognize it's supposed to be about Jesus. Anyways, if we were resurrected into new life, certainly we would rush immediately to our disciples and here I am, look at me. Jesus seems to do something strangely different. Why not stick around the tomb? Why not be there when the women arrived? Certainly he was glad to see them and they would be glad to see him and then he could walk with them and there would be no risk of misunderstanding. No people left wondering or marveling or trying to understand. A big surprise and everybody gathered together, a celebration. It struck me though that Jesus does something entirely different. He shows up to two of his followers. These two men on the road to Emmaus are specifically described, not necessarily as one of the 12 apostles, but one of those who had been following him, who knew him, who knew his teaching. He shows up to them, walking with them for this journey, seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus. He walks with them and talks with them, and yet they do not recognize him, although they know him well. We aren't entirely sure where ancient Emmaus was, but this seven-mile journey in the ancient world would have been a long one, a day's walking. An average man walks about three miles an hour, but the terrain that dropped from Jerusalem down those seven miles to Emmaus would have been difficult. And so it is these two men with Jesus spent the majority of the day walking. They left Jerusalem, apparently having learned about the testimony of the women on the third day that the tomb was empty, But they left, like the other disciples were, having not seen Jesus, having not proved out the story, but perplexed and confused, and as the passage specifically says, sad, disappointed. They headed for home, having had all of their ideas, their expectations dashed. The Messiah they hoped to deliver Israel had been put to death, and to make matters worse, his body was now missing. Who knew what had happened? But certainly, they concluded, it was not what they expected. Luke tells us they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. What really struck me this week is that Jesus' first resurrection act in Luke's gospel was to intersect these disciples in their disappointment, in their hopelessness, 
and they're trudging back home, confused and misunderstanding, back to whatever ordinary life they had been doing before Jesus had come along, before they had followed him to Jerusalem for that Passover, whatever life looked like before they had found what they hoped was the Messiah, they now went back to. It's probably God's intention that they would not recognize Jesus on the road. Certainly, it seems the way Luke records it, that they weren't allowed to see him, to recognize him. But that irony is pretty profound. They had lost so much hope, had been so disillusioned by what they had hoped for and now had seen ended, that even when Jesus stands before them, they cannot in that disillusionment recognize him, recognize the resurrected Jesus there with them. We can hear of Jesus' death, his resurrection, even know that Jesus is with us, and yet the truth is, as we journey, as we walk, so often it's true as well. This presence of Christ, this risen presence of Christ, can be something hard for us to recognize. We look around and find ourselves by the events of this world, like the events of that one, confused and disillusioned and frustrated. Life does not match our expectations, not what we imagined how it would go or how it would work. And though we understand that Christ is with us, sure, Christ is risen, how easy it is for us to miss him, to not see him, to overlook it. Jesus doesn't immediately say, hey, it's me, I'm here with you. Instead, Luke tells us he began to open the scriptures and teach them. And he began with Moses and all the prophets, and he interpreted to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. Could you imagine a conversation like that? Not just a 45-minute sermon, a whole day walking along the road with Jesus from the beginning of the Torah all the way through the prophets and the historical writings explaining exactly who the Messiah was and why the things that had occurred had been planned. After Jesus' death and resurrection, the early church went back and started combing through all of those passages of their Bible and suddenly discovering place after place after place where exactly what had occurred to Jesus was there all along. Like so many of those details of Psalm 22 we looked at together on Good Friday, but all over, from Moses to the prophets to the writings. That's what Jesus did with his disciples, unpacked it to them, showed it to them took them back to the things they knew, the things they had learned, the things they had been grown up hearing in synagogues and memorizing from parents, but somehow in the disillusionment of that day had lost, had misunderstood, had not fully recognized. He points out how all of those things they knew in their youth were true now, even though it didn't seem true to them. We read that as he taught them, they said their hearts began to burn within them. Many of us who have come to follow Christ know that language, to hear of Jesus and what he has done for us, to recognize what it means for us, to feel within us his spirit coming, convicting, burning within our hearts. I pray every week that that's the experience that we have together. As we turn to strange passages like Second Kings and floating axe heads as we will next week and think, what in the world does this have to do with life? That something about it, as it did with Jesus and those disciples, brings us back to him. Something within our hearts begins to burn within us as the truth, the reality of it, sets in. That when we read stories of Moses and David and Saul and Abraham and Elijah and Elisha, that somehow there are glimpses of Christ that lead us to see him in our own day, resurrected and alive. 
As this story unfolds, evening comes, and they convince Jesus to go in and eat with them, to sit down. Isn't it fitting that as he takes the bread and breaks it, they suddenly realize exactly who he is? They suddenly recognize him. This is the resurrected Jesus. And notice they rush back to tell of who it is they've seen. I want to suggest a couple things to you this morning, this Easter morning, about Jesus, about how he shows up alongside us in life to walk and teach, this burning within our hearts, this truth of a resurrected Messiah. The first is that if we're not careful, our expectations about life can discourage us and blind us, that we can miss the surprise of Easter and the reality of it by the things we're looking for. And second, that this surprise of resurrection, when fully realized and received, becomes for us an energizer, a propellant, a new way back into the world and into life, even now. The first is their blindness. The disciples that day had absolutely no expectation of encountering Jesus along the road. You could imagine the last person on earth they thought they would meet, leaving Jerusalem and going to Emmaus, this little town we don't even know of, would be Jesus, this monumental figure of these monumental days, dead and now his body missing. Certainly they were not looking for him. For them, death had been a kind of absolute end, a final line. Worse, the humiliation of it being crucifixion and the body now possibly robbed or taken left no doubt, no question to the defeat. Jesus had been humiliated, handed over, beaten, betrayed, crucified. It was an end, a terrible, unfortunate, disappointing, and humiliating end. They had both been looking for a Messiah, even believing that Jesus was that Messiah. But as these events unfolded, there was no way for them to reconcile what they had expected with what they had now heard and witnessed. How could Jesus have been blessed by God? How could he have been God? How could he have been anointed when he was put to death by Romans, when he was tried by corrupt politicians, when he was mocked by common crowds? Jesus had not lived up to their expectations of Messiah. The flame of Jesus' ministry had been snuffed out, and with it, all of this hope and expectation that they walked with. I think it's really important to remember that these two are disciples. These are some of Jesus' closest followers. These are some of the men who have heard and listened and understood more than anyone else around them. If anyone was going to get what Jesus was doing, surely it would have been men like them. Yet they find themselves so blinded by their expectations that even as Jesus now walks with them, in their disappointment, they still cannot recognize that truth. You can be a disciple of Jesus and still struggle to understand him. You can spend years reading your Bible, focusing on who Jesus is and what he did, and still miss the fact that he is with you in this moment, in this discouragement, in this loss. What blinded these disciples was what they expected, that Jesus did not fit into that expectation of their life or their place in it. You might as well admit that that sort of thing happens to you, to all of us, that life comes along with a set of expectations about what we should get and how it should go and how it should pay off, and that when we find those expectations dashed, it's those very times that we begin to feel that God has abandoned us. That perhaps God is not who he says he is, or not as involved as we thought he was. 
We have ideas and expectations, and when those expectations fail, we're quick to feel abandoned. How ironic, because Jesus came and found these two, the first two to receive the resurrected Jesus, the very ones whose hope had been lost. Is it not often that way, that Jesus comes to those who are hopeless, that Jesus comes to those who are most confused, those who had believed so much before and now find themselves struggling to even understand how it's possible? And there, Jesus begins to teach and walk And the fire within their hearts began to burn again. The trap of our expectations and theirs is that it has a tendency to narrow our view on life. We set forward an image of what would be good and begin to measure everyone and everything against that image. Life is good when that image is fulfilled and life is bad when that image is not fulfilled. The only room or space we leave for God is him helping us do that thing that we're expecting him to do. What we miss, of course, is the thing God is doing, the thing that does not fit into our image, resurrection, life, where it looked like death. And so Jesus says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. Is it not foolish, us and our broken humanity and sin, to imagine we know what's best, we know how it should go, we know what it should feel like and how it should play out and what we should get at the end? Instead of recognizing that certainly this one who can be resurrected to life through death, vindication through humiliation, is not his way higher and better and greater than our own. If they are going to recognize Jesus, it was going to mean they would have to put to death their own expectations to see this new thing that he was doing. Following the true resurrected Jesus was going to mean letting go of the world the way they saw it, The world the way they evaluated it, the world the way that it pitched it to them, the propaganda, the messages, the marketing, the slogans, to put it all to death and look again for the first time at who Christ is and what Christ had really done. Resurrection had raised the man who had been put to death, but resurrection to put to death the ambitions and expectations of all men once and for all. That's to say the resurrection so changes the way that we understand the world around us, what's possible within this world, that how would it not change our own expectations of it? No longer death, the final end, the final enemy, but death overcome by life and how much more all of this broken and world of death with it. C.S. Lewis put it this way in Mere Christianity, submit to death. Death of your ambitions, your favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. That is the hope of resurrection that to this world sounds absurd, but to those who find the resurrected Jesus there with them, it is the way of life and power. That to give is to gain, to sacrifice is to receive, to die is to live eternal. Some of us don't find Easter and resurrection all that moving because we haven't learned to put to death our own expectations. We come into days like this with our own expectations of what we want, our own disappointments and discouragements. But the way we receive resurrection, the way we receive Easter Sunday when it comes around each year, is to be still and quiet to our own desires and look again at what Christ has done that no one could have expected or anticipated. If true then, 
if true in death and resurrection, how much more my own discouragements, my own losses, my own feelings. We are still trying to control things, to decide about things, to direct things to our outcome. But the resurrection forces us into a position of receiving. What else can you do with news like this? You can't leverage it for some promotion at work. You can't use it to make some investment and get ahead. You can't just recite it over and over to yourself and somehow fix some emotional problem. The resurrection forces you, like these disciples, to listen. Like Peter, to marvel. Like these women, to wonder fully what it means. It forces you out of your expectation and into a position of amazement. Resurrection means stepping into a world that now functions entirely differently than what you had previously lived in or thought. The truth is, that's an incredibly hard thing. I'm well aware, easy for a pastor to say on Easter morning, resurrection changes everything. And hard when it comes to tomorrow morning and work days and another week and bills due, tomorrow tax day, hope you got your checks in the mail. Doesn't seem like Jesus changes everything. Honestly, how might this world be changed if we really did believe in resurrection? If we believed in it with the kind of certainty we believe in gravity, with the kind of certainty we believe in coming death and inevitability, that life and resurrection life is as real and true as anything. Living forever would surely begin to quiet some of our own desperations. Eternal life, resurrection life, would begin to change the way we think about here and now. It would give us a kind of patience, an ability to relax into things that right now feel difficult, that Jesus is walking with us, showing us the way through death into new life, an empty tomb. Jesus' resurrection doesn't end in defeat. But what it does is it brings new life to those who are willing to look for it, to see it. It begins to change the way we live into this world. Take things like greed, how petty it now seems to accumulate when simply by faith we are given life and riches with it. Or the futility of violence, the violence that put Jesus to death when the righteous are vindicated and brought right back to life. Control and power. Whenever weakness is vindicated, the weak shall inherit the earth, the meek shall inherit the earth. Reputation, fighting for our own positions in this world, and yet Christ is given the reputation even as he is mocked by the crowds. Fear that the disciples lived in, the door locked behind them, and yet Christ walks through it and makes that fear seem almost silly in the context of his resurrection. Everything that had gone wrong and seemed dashed suddenly now right Everything which had been done for the claim of evil, God had actually used for good. And so it is as this news of resurrection begins to set in, just how much changes about the way we see this world and live in it. By this hope of resurrection, Jesus hadn't just sidestepped that pain or suffering, but he had transformed it. He leaned into death. He leaned into his poverty, leaned into his humiliation, his loss and isolation, And he transformed it into the very thing that God uses for life, for hope, for resurrection. 
When you say that you believe God raised Jesus from the dead, you are saying something that quite literally changes the way the world works, that turns it upside down. Everything that this world expects and looks for, everything that we struggle against, the pain and the suffering and loss, are no longer what they appear to be, but now changed because of his resurrection. And resurrection opens our eyes to being able to see it, to live it. The hardest part of Easter is trying to find the right way to say this point that doesn't just feel like another spring tradition. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. But if you really believe it, then everything within us is changed. The world itself. One of my favorite quotes every Easter is from N.T. Wright. He has a book called Surprised by Hope, which captures this unbelievably life-changing reality of resurrection. He writes, left to ourselves, we lapse into a kind of collusion with entropy. We acquiesce in the general belief that things may be getting worse, but that there's nothing much that we can do about it anyways. But we're wrong. Our task in the present is to live as resurrected people in between Easter and the final day, with our Christian life, corporate and individual, in both worship and mission, as a sign of the first and foretaste of the second. That resurrection is not just about today, but a new way of living in this world. Do you notice what happens when these disciples finally realize it? When they finally understand what this means for Jesus to be breaking bread with them? It was nighttime. Remember, they convinced Jesus to stay because they said it's too late in the day to keep walking. Stay with us here. So as they all gathered together for an evening meal, the sun already setting, they suddenly realize it is Jesus. And as Jesus disappears from them, what do they do? Make their pallets and head off to sleep. It's late. They turn around and rush back to Jerusalem. They've spent the entire day going downhill from Jerusalem, an entire day's journey, And now they pack everything up at sunset and under darkness and night rush back to Jerusalem to tell the other disciples what they'd heard. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with him gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed. They're no longer on their way to Emmaus. They're no longer on their way back to their home. No longer traveling in their disappointments or discouragements. If you really catch a glimpse of Christ's resurrection, the itinerary of your life changes. The direction of it, the plans. You get up in the middle of the night and rush back seven miles to the place you just came from just to tell somebody it's true. The resurrection means you will be taking roads and heading in directions, going places entirely different than what you had planned before because everything has changed. If it hasn't, if the direction of your life hasn't been changed, if you're still plotting and working toward that thing you decided and set out for, then you've not recognized how great this news of resurrection is. You may be following some religious system, some set of rules, some expectations about how good people live and the benefits, generally speaking, that come from good, healthy living. But that's not resurrection hope. That's not Christ dead, now alive, the world forever changed. Eugene Peterson wrote, It is not easy to convey a sense of this resurrection wonder, let alone resurrection wonder to be lived. 
It's the very nature of wonder to catch us off guard, to circumvent our expectations and assumptions. Wonder cannot be packaged and it cannot be woken up. It requires some sense of being there and some sense of engagement and some sense of being changed by it. Every spring we gather for Easter. Every spring we sing songs about resurrection, Christ is risen. But the goal is not just to do the tradition, but to wake ourselves up again to the wonder of it. Resurrection wonder that turns the disciples completely around and propels them once discouraged, now rejoicing with a message. Every true believer will testify to the truth. Their life will be changed and reoriented. Maybe it isn't this way, literally turning and going another direction, but if something in your life has not been changed, if you haven't sacrificed something or given something up, if you've not died to something within yourself and found something better by resurrection to live for, then you've missed the amazement, the wonder of it. Tim Keller has one of the best ways of stating it as simply this impact of Easter that I know. Resurrection is Jesus' walking proof that you will miss nothing, that there is nothing in this life sacrificed or laid down that not is, give, is not given back to you in resurrection, that resurrection is the first fruits of a greater resurrection to come in which God will make all things new, in which all wrongs will be made right, in which every tear will be wiped away. Resurrection is proof that this world does not get the final word, Resurrection is proof that there is nothing ultimately lost. Resurrection is proof that nothing can drag you under or hold you under or keep you down. Resurrection is proof that nothing is finally broken, but all things are restored. Resurrection is proof that God is doing something greater than our limited expectations could ever possibly imagine. And yet by his grace and mercy, he has included us in it. Resurrection means you are in on it. Christ's resurrection is not just his, but yours. Like Christ, you will find your body raised, your eyes open to the surprise of it, as much as that Easter morning those disciples were themselves. How differently the world must have looked on that trip back that night to Jerusalem than it had that day leaving it. And so it is for all of us who receive this Easter wonder. How different this world looks on this side of his resurrection than on that side before it. As Paul put it, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Christ's resurrection is your guarantee of resurrection. To wonder at it, to receive it, to lean into it, to be changed by it, to live it. This resurrection, this Easter morning, This news, death overcome with life, loss pushed back by grace received, confusion and discouragement, now given direction and purpose and boldness and clarity. That message is your message this morning as much as it was those disciples on the road to Emmaus. So Peter records in 1 Peter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead. This morning, it's yours to wonder at, yours to receive, your living hope to live into in the days before us.
Let's thank him in prayer and we'll worship together this morning. Heavenly Father, your mercy and your grace are incredible. That you would die for our sins and that you would overcome that death through resurrection and that you would go on to offer it to us as sinners. God, I pray this morning, like those disciples, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we would receive again that resurrection wonder, the sense of what we have by your grace and mercy. God, even this morning, that you would make it burn in our hearts as we receive again this news of your life, life from the grave, that you would make it within us a living hope, a reality that we live with each day as we go forward, changed by it, redirected by it. God, those here this morning who feel discouraged, who may feel down, who may feel lost or confused as these disciples were. God, for those here this morning battling sickness, battling dashed expectations and hopelessness. God, I pray that you would do as you did for those disciples. By your spirit, make yourself visible to us again. Put in our hearts the fire of your good news, your gospel, that we might see you that we might feel your presence with us, that we might again receive this news as you broke that bread, as we did it Friday together, that we might recognize you in a place and in a time in our life where we least expected it, that in the midst of death, you bring life, in the midst of discouragement, you bring hope, in the midst of loss, you bring grace and mercy, in the midst of sickness, you bring healing. And so it is we worship you, We rush out from this place like those disciples, declaring to all that we find, you are risen indeed. You are alive. This world has been forever changed by it. So this morning, let us join with all of those churches all over the world, all over history and time itself, who declared this truth into a world that may have mocked it and misunderstood it, but in it they found your power at work for new life, life now and life to come. So we join with them this morning and declare you are risen indeed, that your gospel is good news to whoever would receive it. And this morning we receive it again ourselves. Come, Lord Jesus, pour your spirit out into our hearts. Give us resurrection wonder anew this day that we would live it, that we would be changed by it, that we would find new boldness, that we would not be like this world, but we would rise above it as your followers and disciples. And we would bring to it a message of hope, a message of salvation, a message of life in the midst of death. We worship you this morning, Lord. Pour your spirit out on us as we worship you this Easter morning again. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's worship him together this morning.